Welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents like you, because if you're on this call, you probably are a wholesale change agent. My name is Ian Heller. I'll be your co-host today, along with my business partner, the Tower of Analytical Power, the Doctor of Distribution, the man who will never let you down, Jonathan Bine, PhD. How are you doing this morning, Jonathan? Always a pleasure to work with my partner, that stellar feller, Ian Heller. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. My name, I I think I'm harder to rhyme with than yours. So today's show was supposed to be about product data, right? So we had Jason Hine lined up as a special guest and uh, he's going to be back soon. So we're going to, we're going to do that show sometime in the near future, but there was big, big news yesterday in the distribution world. So we pivoted at the last second, and we changed the topic of the show. So instead of talking about product data today, we're going to talk about the mega merger that was announced yesterday between HD Supply Construction and Industrial Whitecap and Construction Supply Group. So uh, you ready for this conversation, Jonathan? Let's go. All right, good. So, you know, this is a $4 billion deal, and uh, we're going to give you a bit of an overview of the deal first, and then we'll talk about some of the implications. So uh, first of all, let's talk a little bit about HD Supply Whitecap. So they had an IPO planned, right? I mean, they were going to spin out and be in their own independent public company. Now that got delayed because of this pandemic and this, you know, what we all hope is a temporary global recession. And so yesterday, instead, they announced that, uh, or HD Supply announced that they're selling the Whitecap subsidiary to private equity firm Clayton, DeBillier, and Rice, heretofore referred to as CD&R. They're buying them for $2.9 billion dollars. Whitecap has 270 branches and 500, excuse me, 5,500 employees. And they are, they really have three business units. There's Whitecap, which is by far the largest of the three. There's Bravasco, which is really a fastener and construction supplies distributor in Canada. And then Home Improvement Solutions, which is a warehouse home improvement store in uh, operating primarily in California. So these are three business units. Whitecap is the biggest. uh, And uh, I think they're going to go back to the name Whitecap as a part of this transition. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's a big deal, right? This is definitely one of the, you know, biggest deals in distribution in a while. Construction Supply Group. Now this company is not that old. It was built by acquisitions. There are 17 operating units. We believe they uh, were sold for about $1.1 billion based on the frankly pretty clear data in the press release. They have 130 branches and 2000 employees. So, you know, this is a combined, this is going to be a big company. About $4 billion was the size of the deal and a little over $4 billion in revenue. And the Whitecap CEO, John Stegeman, and the president, Alan Sollenberger, will be the two top executives, uh, meaning I think that the headquarters is probably moving to Atlanta and not Denver, where Construction Supply Group is based today. And uh, I'm guessing that they will call the whole shoot and match Whitecap. Any thoughts on this deal before we go on, Jonathan? Well, I think to your point, the Whitecap brand is significantly larger than, first of all, the company is much larger than any of the uh, individual companies of Construction Supply Group. And Construction Supply Group is not particularly a brand, right? Mm-hmm. White, Whitecap has really made a very specific intention of changing brand, or of, of creating a brand around what they do. So if you look at all the acquisitions that happened prior to your involvement, they all got rolled in under the Whitecap brand with the exception of Bravasco and um, the one other that you mentioned. So, yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, uh, you know, they made, I don't know, dozens of acquisitions before I got there in the seven years I was there, we didn't make one. I don't think that's correlated by the way. <laughs> right. 
but um, anyway, so uh, but all of them were rebadged as YCAP and they run under a single uh, ERP system. Um, so they really integrated those acquisitions, whereas Construction Supply Group, in many ways, kind of operated as a, I don't know, almost a privately held buying group, right? I mean, it seems like they were trying to get synergies on the buying side. They still operated under the independent brands. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, you know, the notion there was that they would build synergies over time, but I don't know if they operate on a single ERP system. Uh, someone told me yesterday that they thought they did, but I also have heard in the past that they don't. Um, and they certainly operate under separate brands. So, you know, whatever, I'm not sure if they were just building this company to sell it like they did you No, know? So maybe they, maybe that was exactly their strategy and they succeeded or they just never got around to the next step of integration. Yeah, let, let's maybe come back to that topic. I okay. think we have it set for for a, a right. next slide, but I mean, there's a, there's a rich discussion to be had around that. So, okay, yeah, okay. Let's see here. So, you know, I wrote about this yesterday. So, if you go to distributionstrategy.com, uh, I wrote a column yesterday that has the same title as today's episode uh, here on the Wholesale Chain Show. And uh, one of the things I address is regulatory challenges. You know, because a couple of years ago. White Cap bought another distributor called A.H. Harris, which they, you know, rebadged as White Cap. Uh, and I think that integration has gone very well. I mean, what I've heard from the people in the industry that I know is that for the most part, the A.H. Harris people, you know, there's always a shock about being bought by your biggest competitor. Uh, but since then, they have really uh, enjoyed being part of the White Cap family for the most part. I'm sure some people didn't and left, but a lot of people really like it. And, uh, but there were some regulatory challenges, right? I mean, that took a while for that to get approved by the FTC. Um, and this is a much larger deal, you know, because you've got number one and number two combining. So, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but I got to think if they had some challenges from the FTC before, they may have some now. What do you think? Anytime you have deals this large um, that involve this much concentration, um, the FTC is going to have to take a look. They're going to have to weigh in, right? Um, what, I, what I wrote yesterday was, I think this is going to be a problem or not for the FTC based on who they look at as the competitive set, right? So, I mean, I think, and I'm not really sure because these are all privately held companies, but I think the next two biggest players in this industry are Ram Tool uh, in the Southeast and Colony Hardware, which is mostly in the Northeast, right? So, and they have some overlap, but that's generally where they where they are concentrated, um, I think one's got 40 something branches. The other one's got 30 something branches. So they're, you know, much smaller, you know, maybe a 10th of the size, maybe a little bit bigger. So if that's the competitive set they look at, th there could be some obstacles. Now, I don't think CDNR would have tried to do this deal. Neither would Sterling Capital or the Sterling Group, because the Sterling Group was the owner of Construction Supply Group. And in the new entity, CDNR will own 65% of this company and the Sterling Group will own 35%. I don't think they would have executed this deal if they thought they couldn't get approval. But I do think that it's going to hinge to some degree on what the FTC looks at as a list of competitors. Because if your competitors are, you know, all these regional supply houses, then you're going to go, well, I don't know, this is, you know, is this anti-competitive? But if you look at, you know, the disruptors who are coming into the industry, then this is still a small company, right? I mean, you compare this to Amazon Business or or to Walmart.com or Alibaba's B2B subsidiary or eBay Business and Industrial or Home Depot and what they're doing in commercial accounts, you know, et cetera. And there are other, Google, Google Shopping, right? Which carries a bunch of distributor types of products. Then you'd say, oh my gosh, they've got to consolidate to pool resources 
to compete with these huge disruptors. If that's the competitive set, this should be a slam dunk. And maybe they'll look at it both ways. But to me, I mean, if the FTC starts getting in the way of consolidation in the distribution industry, they're going to doom these distributors because you have to pool, you have to get bigger, you have to combine your resources to fight back. I think that's right. And and I think also as as cover or as precedent, um, there are other um, large deals that have been done recently. We were talking before the show about Wesco and Annexter. I mean, that's literally three times as large as this deal, right? Uh, combined. Yeah. Uh, there have been other bigger deals that have been done um, that that didn't get hammered by by the FTC. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my guess is it will it will probably go through based on similar and larger precedent. Right, right. We have a question. This is from an anonymous attendee. That's always a little mysterious, right? And this anonymous attendee is asking, what thoughts do you have on the future of the remaining HD supply business? So this would be, you know, facilities maintenance, right? HD supply maintenance solutions. Will they run as a highly profitable standalone company or become an acquisition target on their own? And who would be interested in buying them? So here's my view on that. First of all, you know, I mean, there used to be like, I don't know, like 10 HD supply business units and all of them got sold, right? So there's like one left. You know, so you would say if history is any guy, they'll probably get sold too. On the other hand, you know, it's really always been the most profitable and the largest single business. So it's it's perfectly viable. I mean, even by itself, it's one of the largest distributors in the U.S. So there's no compelling business case to sell it. And as far as them being an acquisition target, every company's an acquisition target with the exception of just a handful that are just gigantic, right? So I'm sure they're on somebody's list uh, to be acquired, you know, in terms of who would buy them. I would guess probably another PE group. I mean, you know, CDNR has been buying a lot of distribution companies and so have a lot of other uh, big PE firms, but I would imagine it's probably another uh, PE firm. I mean, you know, the sales are down a lot at at, at HD Supply, the remaining business, the maintenance solutions business, just because they had a lot invested in hospitality. And it's not their fault that the market just crashed, but it did. And so their, you know, sales and earnings are down quite a bit. Uh, so I guess that depending on whether or not you believe that's a somewhat permanent condition, or if that market's going to come roaring back, you may view their current valuation as a deal or not. I mean, you know, the business is going to have hardly any debt now, I think, and uh, it's very profitable. So it's attractive. The question is, you know, who do they integrate with where the synergies make sense? And I'm, you know, that's maybe the hard part because, you know, it, it feels like, you know, it's not, uh, would Granger buy them? I mean, I don't think so because, they don't, they already have all those products and a lot of those shared customers. And, you know, so it's hard to imagine they're going to pay billions of dollars to try to get into a market that they're already in when they could just basically pursue that market with their current resources. Um, so I think it's more of a financial investor, financial buyer. What do you think, Jonathan? I think, I think what you're, I like your line of logic there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my guess, go ahead. I had another thought though about what CDNR could do from Jason. He said they can make the argument that the white cap acquisition is a counter to Amazon business. We need to buy white cap to build up an e-commerce experience that can compete with Amazon business. So that's, that's, that's saying comparing it against the bigger players as opposed to the smaller um, to make the case that, that, that this is not uh, unfair uh, competitive advantage they're going to have by combining Right. Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, it's hard to believe, but Amazon is so big that they do not have to disclose the revenues of Amazon business 
even though we know Amazon business was $10 billion two years ago, right? Or a year and a half ago, they do not have to disclose it because it falls under the threshold of 10% of, I think it's assets employed and or earnings or sales. There's about a 10, there's a 10% threshold that forces disclosure and they don't have to disclose it because it's not that big. Now, you know, there are now, the other thing is that these platforms, they don't report total sales. They report gross merchandise or they report for the SEC. They report the, the commissions off of their gross merchandise sales, right? So they have all that third-party revenue that comes through those platforms, but they don't report that third-party revenue, that third-party seller revenue. They report their commissions off of it, which makes them look much smaller than they really are. On a gross merchandise volume basis, in other words, you know, everything Amazon sells itself, plus all of its third-party seller revenue, current estimates, I think Merrill Lynch Bank of America thinks that Amazon business is going to be, I think, $34 billion by 2023. And RBC, World Bank of Canada, thinks it's going to be over $50 billion by 2023. Our friends at Applico, who are, you know, have had a pretty good track record for these kinds of forecasts, they think Amazon business is going to be $73 billion in gross merchandise revenue by 2023, right? So there, and that's just the, that's just the B2B part of Amazon. Now, if any of those numbers are remotely close, then that makes Amazon business one of the largest distributors in the world, less than, you know, five or six years after it was founded. And, you know, in that context, you, these distributors have to consolidate. So I think, you know, holding that up as a point of reference would be smart. Absolutely. Well, and even the, the low end of that estimate, the $34 billion, puts puts Amazon business as larger than the largest durable goods distributor in the world, or at least in the US, which is probably Sonopar, right? There's a, yeah. The largest durable goods is around $30 billion, you know, maybe Ferguson's in that range as well. And they would be larger than the largest durable goods distributor. Yeah, and, and uh, Jason, a friend of the show, has just uh, clarified that it was technically 10 years after Amazon entered B2B sales. I think he's including Amazon supply in that. And, that, and so that's fair. But still, you know, zero to 34, 53, or $73 billion in 10 years is pretty incredible. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think that's a pretty slow growth rate. I'm, I'm pretty underwhelmed. Are you really? Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. You know, that's why we're going to double that growth rate with our own business. Exactly. Um, okay. So I, my prediction is it's going to get approved. What do you think? Yes. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, there aren't any more sophisticated investors in the world than these guys at, and these not guys, these men and women at, at CDNR and Sterling. Right. So they're, they're not, they're not going to waste all this time and money for a deal that is, they think may not get approved. Well, in, in full disclosure, I mean, when, when you were at Whitecap, you, you were acquainted with the folks at CDNR. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, in our consulting business, we've actually worked for some of the Sterling Group portfolio companies. So we, we know right. both private equity funds. Right. And just to clarify, though, we have no financial arrangements of any kind, uh, current or pending, with any of these companies, not with Whitecap, Construction Supply Group, Sterling, or CDNR. Right. Okay. So uh, branding and integration. Uh, Whitecap is a branded house. That means there's one brand uh, for, you know, that, that's used across the business, at least in the construction supplies business, the home improvement solutions operate separately. And then the, uh, the white cap name has been carried into Canada. Uh, and uh, so the vast majority of the revenues go out under the white cap name. CSG has been a house of brands, as we discussed earlier, where they've got, you know, if you go to their website, construction supply you'll see that they have 17 different operating units and they've not changed the names of any of them. 
What do you think going forward, Jonathan? Well, I, th- I think it's clear it, it will end up as as white cap. Um, yeah. Their strategy is to integrate brands, back office infrastructure, you know, operating systems, all of that. Um, but I think as a as a point of strategy, CSG's group is is interesting because there actually there is a rationale for maintaining the brand that they buy. Um, I, I think in construction. Um, the end customer often has loyalty to the brand. And for that reason, perhaps they've decided to leave the brands in place. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, though, is that it creates it creates a lot of challenges for, for the parent company. And I've seen this in other construction um, businesses. We work with uh, one of the largest construction supplies business for uh, drywall. And they had something like 52 brands. And it really at the time, and I think they've since consolidated it all and they've been bought by ABC supply. Mm-hmm. Um, but it creates a lot of challenges internally to have that many brands. And that's just from a customer facing standpoint, right? It's just not efficient. I mean, you just, you, uh, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, it's easier, right? Because you don't, I mean, that's to some degree, this is a big cultural challenge because you've got these employees who are very, very loyal to this company that they've worked for. It's been called, called a certain name, and that becomes a part of their self-esteem, part of their identity. And now you're going to change it. So you have to introduce them to a new environment, a new family that they want to be a part of. And I think that's, I think Whitecap's really good at that. It's a very, very good place to work. And I think, you know, if you're at A.H. Harris, you had a lot of resistance up front. But like I said, I've heard, you know, that that company, those people are, at least what I've heard is that they're very proud and happy to be part of Whitecap. I think that's going to be the case for you know, most, certainly not all, there are going to be some people who don't like it, but I think it's a favorable environment and I think they'll be okay with the name change over time. Now with customers, it makes all kinds of sense because man, just the versioning of your, you know, everything from your contracts to your marketing materials, you know, to your, you know, business cards and, um, you know, you name it, your, your legal names, uh, well, you know what I mean? it's really hard to manage all those different names and you're much better off. You can build so much brand equity around a single name. I mean, we're pretty close to this because we actually did the branding project uh, for white cap. I mean, the name was kind of a no brainer, but we you know we did the slogan building trust in every job. And I think that that will extend nicely to these other businesses. Well, I think it's also an interesting strategy on the part of the private equity fund, private equity funds sort of come down on one of two sides, either integrate, you know, branded house or don't integrate house of brands. Um, and you can create value either way. Um, Sterling is, is clearly a very successful private equity group. Sure. They tend to go on the not integrated side of things. I've looked at some of their other deals. Uh, they tend to do the house of brands um, minimal in terms of the back office integration or, or just what's necessary. Right. Right. But I think that presents other challenges as you go forward. So if you start to think about, you know, digital infrastructure, and that, I'm including CRM in that as well as um, e-commerce, e-business-oriented things, it, it gets tricky if you have to do multiple e-commerce systems, right? Or if you have to, yeah. if, if you have to integrate e-commerce to multiple back-end ERPs, and the, the complexity grows not in a linear fashion, but almost in a geometric fashion with every acquisition you do um, because there's, there's potential interactions between each, between, between each company at that point. And now you have more yeah. potential interactions because you have more companies. So, so the complexity grows in a geometric fashion, not in a linear fashion. Okay. So that's a great point. I hadn't thought of 
um, embarrassed to say, but I think that's, I think that I think you're right on because uh, digital is going to become essential, even in construction supplies, you know, arguably to some degree it already is right. At least some level of digital that's going to continue to grow over time. Can you really build that? I mean, the te- I'm, I'm sure the technology is there that you could duplicate that on a bunch of websites that have different names, but they're white label on the front end and integrated on the back end, but it sure is a lot simpler and easier technically. And in terms of promoting these things, you know, from, from SEO to email marketing, if you consolidate them under one name and they already own whitecap.com, you know, we never let go of that. So right. even though we changed the name, we, the website was always whitecap.com. And thankfully, and thankfully, you know, we held on to that because I think there was always this notion that this can happen someday. And we, uh, uh, the anonymous attendee has asked another question. Typically, what do you think this, the, the merger would actually look like for both businesses? How does CDNR typically handle staff locations and vendors? So I don't, know, I don't know the second half of that question. I don't know how CDNR typically does it. I can tell you what I think will happen in this case. I think they're going to integrate and become one company. I think they're going to, you know, they're going to have one headquarters and they're going to, interestingly, despite the fact that these companies have hundreds of branches combined, the overlap's not that great on locations. So I think most of them are going to, you know, they'll probably maintain the vast majority of those locations and just, you know, eliminate overlaps where they need to. But here's the thing that people need to understand that's different about construction supplies. You might have branches very close to each other that have different missions. So for example, you might have a, you know, what they call a waterproofing branch, right? And it's right down the road from a traditional construction supplies branch. Or, and, you know, you might have fire stop and waterproofing and a couple of other things that one branch specializes in and the branch right down the block specializes in, in traditional construction supplies. So it's, it's not, like a, not like having two McDonald's that are too close together, right? I mean, there are different reasons that you might have multiple locations in the same geographical area. So I, I wouldn't... I think to line up the maps and say, well, these are two are too close and these two are too close and, and start putting X's through those dots. That's a very unsophisticated way to look at this deal because you have to look at what those branches are doing and what the market opportunities are in a particular area. So I think generally it's going to be a true integration, but uh, I, I think the, the, the customer facing locations will be a case by case decision based on what those. Uh, How complimentary the product mix is. Not just the product mix, but also the staff, because the like the the sales reps who are really good fire stop, that's a specialty area, specialty training and everything else, and they're not typically selling construction supplies. So uh, Jason has asked another question, which is, thank you, Jason, as always. Whoops. What happens when 3D printing becomes a thing and contractors can print their own orders bought from a supplier's 3D printables warehouse? Well, so this is a chance to pitch a paper that we that Jonathan and I just wrote uh, for the NAW. So if you go to naw.org, NAW is the parent association of all trade associations in the distribution industry in North America. Um, there's a rotating banner on the top. If you click on that, you'll get to the second research report that we just wrote about how technology is going to transform distribution. There's a section in there on, on uh, what uh, additive manufacturing or 3D printing is going to do. I think, you know, we'll do a whole show on that at some point in time. Uh, I just think it's going to be a long time before it, it adds up to a significant amount of revenue in the construction industry. Jonathan? Absolutely. And we're doing a, a sort of parallel survey with end customers. And the data that we have from end customers so far uh, supports what the distributors are saying, which is, hey, we're not seeing a ton of application for, for 3D printing. So It'll happen. I mean, they can 3D print houses out of concrete now, right? So. Right. 
but you know, that's very early prototype stuff. So it's going to be a while before it happens, but I think it is, a, it's a great question and it's important that uh, distributors uh, and their investors stay on top of that. It's a question that we are asking in this NEW research project. And, and, and that's correct. That, that's how great a question it is. It, it's such a great question that we're asking, asking it in research. Okay. So uh, growth options. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so there's several different ways, you know, so now that you've got this behemoth, this $4 billion uh, construction supplies companies, how do you grow it? How would you grow it, Jonathan? Well, I think to your point, they've, they've got the footprint um, pretty well. It's complementary between, between the two businesses. Um, and I mean, even prior to this acquisition, you know, Whitecap could claim most locations. I mean, now that's just a, a dominant claim. In terms of the product categories that they currently sell, I mean, they are going to be way and above the largest selection and assortment. So I think there's kind of three broad areas. One is acquisitions. Another is finding the white space where they're not uh, physically more North American locations. And then the third is, do they look at, um, at other product lines? Now, one thing to clarify, by the way, for our listeners uh, Whitecap doesn't actually sell you the material for concrete, right? I mean, well, they don't sell the concrete, except in small the bags for patching and stuff like that, right? Right. So, I mean, they sort of sell everything but that, and they're considered they're considered construction specialty supply. Why, why don't we take each of these in, in, in sequence? Let's maybe start with the bottom one, Ian. You know, th- does it make sense for them to expand further into the specialty construction supply space? So the the, te- the buzzwords you have there are insulation, roofing, building materials, et cetera. Well, I think, you know, look, there are only so many ways you can grow a business, right? I think um, right now, I think they, you know, they probably aren't going to do a lot more acquisitions just because it takes, it's going to take a long time to digest this one. um, And they're not going to need to, because they're going to have a big enough uh, pool of resources to grow without spending billions or hundreds of millions on another acquisition. Also, who are you going to acquire and can you get that one approved by the FTC? So my guess is this is it for a while, unless they go internationally, which I don't expect. I think, you know, this is still a very sales rep intensive business. And I have, you know, friends who are sales reps at Whitecap and I talk to them on a regular basis and they're just as busy now. I mean, they, even when they couldn't visit job sites, they're doing the same work that they were doing before. They're just doing it over the phone with great success, frankly, I think, you know, they're going to, some of them are going to spend more time on the phone rather than on the road in the future. So I think investing in your sales force is, you know, if I was running this joint, I'd probably do that. I definitely start working on my digital capabilities because that's going to continue to increase in importance, even in construction supplies. And I think over time I would look at expanding product lines, but you know, when you do that, you start getting exposed to some very big, very big rivals that you don't have to wrangle with today. Right. So, you know, whether it's, um, ABC Supply or whomever, you're talking about some big distribu- distribution companies that, you know, you really don't have to compete with much today. Um, so I would expect them to continue to evaluate product lines, but I think they can grow organically with their current product lines um, for a long period of time. Um, I think they might move into, you know, maybe some customer categories that are adjacent to, con- to construction. You know, I think their federal government um, business could be a lot bigger. I mean, that's complicated, but it's lucrative if you do it right. I think, you know, you could sell to, you know, the petroleum industry in a bigger way. They do a lot of their own maintenance and some of that's construction oriented or the railroads. So I get, I think they're going to find lots of ways to grow without getting into these other product lines because it just introduces a new competitive set. What do you think? 
Um, you're saying what's that's going to be the least friction uh, path of, of growth. And I think what you're saying um, makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing that occurred to me is um, how much how much benefit financially might they get from on the supplier side uh, with with putting these companies together? Yeah, they're going to get some. I mean, I, you know, I think the other thing is that there's a big opportunity for this company to do more in terms of services, right? So like, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a column a few weeks ago on why distributors can't innovate, right? And one of the challenges is that, you know, you, you really can't have operating managers do a new initiative development for a variety of reasons that I explained in the article. And so, for example, you know, if you go to fastenall.com, they've got all this on-site customer stuff, you know, temporary branches and containers on-site and vending machines, et cetera. And some of that they actually do on construction projects. And then Hilti's got things like, you know, fleet rental and some other uh, services that they deliver to customers where they never really buy the power tools. They just sort of lease them on an ongoing basis. And if they break, Hilti takes responsibility for repairing them. I mean, that's the kind of innovation that I think uh, YCAP is going to be very, very well positioned to do, but I don't think they can do that stuff in the field. I don't think you can have field managers who are all about, you know, relentless performance of EBITDA on the current P&L, relentless growth, you focus on the largest opportunities. That's not how innovations like this happen. So I think that there's a big opportunity for them to enhance their services, but I think they need a, they need someone to head that up who's not also a general manager in the field. And if they, if they build that innovation capability, which they have the resources to do it, and they've got the talent to do it, then they could start piloting these projects that are small, that are sort of protected from the core business's desire to squash anything that consumes resources without a proper return in the short term, right? And they could build you know, these new capabilities, but it's not going to happen in the field. And YCAP's a great company. They're extraordinarily field-focused, and that's great. But in every company and every person in our strengths lie our weaknesses. And so that tremendous customer-focused, field-focused strength that is YCAP really gets in the way when it comes to trying to do uh, innovative new concepts, in my opinion. And I, I think that's a very, very easily uh, solved problem. Uh, but I think if they solve it, they can come up with some very uh, interesting innovations that um, help them go after the same kind of job site services that Fast and All and others are innovating around. I think the beauty of, of that, if they can pull it off, is that that will then make them the player with the most logistic prowess and then also the most service prowess, which is unusual in, in the largest corporations in, in a sector, right? And that's where you get paid. I mean, you know, look, these marketplaces, they don't want to do these services. That's right. I mean, their whole financial model depends on not including people in the value delivery. And by the way, YCAP does a ton of this stuff today, right? I mean, the whole tilt-up market where they, you know, have the, they've invested in all these tilt-up braces to hold up concrete panels, you know, that pretty much guarantees you the job if you have the, that's an, that's an exaggeration, but not by a lot. And uh, they've done a brilliant job being the best at leasing those tilt-up braces and then securing project work out of it. That's a service that they offer to get product sales. They could apply that logic in a number of other areas. Okay, uh, so I think this is a look into the future of distribution. What do you think? And why do you think that? Because the distribution industry's days of being spared from disruption are over. What's happened in retail is going to happen in distribution. Now, 
it's a lot harder in distribution because relationships matter and uh, services are important and that's not really the way retail operates. So, you know, I don't think it's going to happen as fast or maybe as completely as it is in retail, but you know, the barbarians are at the gate. I mean, think about the companies that we're talking about who are getting into distribution, right? Google, Amazon, Walmart, Alibaba, eBay, Home Depot, and Berkshire Hathaway. All of those companies are moving into B2B distribution. Those seven companies are among the biggest, most well-capitalized, well-managed and aggressive corporations in the entire world. And they're all making moves into selling B2B supplies, every single one of them. They're either buying distributors or they're launching B2B initiatives or they're selling B2B products on their marketplaces. When that, when those, when that list of companies comes into your industry, it's not good news for the incumbents. It's just not. So those are the barbarians. They're at the gate. They're crashing through the gate. And it's going to drive consolidation, in my opinion. Does that make sense? 100%. And, uh, you know, I, I had written a column uh, a couple years back called Eat Lunch, Be Lunch, or Die. <laughs> and the idea is that you're either, a, you're either eating lunch, you're a consumer, right. or, or you're getting consumed, or you're going to die if you don't get consumed. And so right. that's about the consolidation thing. That's, that's about the scale matters. If you're getting consumed, the question is, are you getting consumed at Ritz-Carlton prices or are you getting consumed at 7-Eleven prices, right? <laughs> um, you know, is, is, are, you, are you like the, you know, like the, the warmers that they have at 7-Eleven? From yeah, with the, yeah, yeah, right. right. You know, are, has your, have you been devalued uh, so much that you're selling out at a, at a, at a fire sale price, right? right? And so if you look at the, the, the platforms that these consolidators, these eaters, these consumers are creating, these platforms include digital, they include strategic pricing, they include strategic sourcing. Um, you know, they, they've centralized a lot of the function that smaller companies don't have where field sales rules and, and reigns, right? Where field mm -hmm. sales controls pricing, uh, where, sales, where field sales is updating the, the product data and you get 50, 50 SKUs of the same product because you got 50 salespeople. Um, so if you look at the platforms that these consolidators are creating, that, that's where scale matters. And if we think about digital, this is interesting because as a segment, building materials, construction, um, particularly if you move outside of HVAC, you know, electrical and, and plumbing, has been a laggard in, in the digital space. Yeah. Well, it's because it's harder. It's not, it's not, it's, it's harder. What, what's hard? It's harder to be good at digital ink construction supplies. And because why? Because the needs are more complex. I mean, it, when, when you, a lot of construction supplies are sold on bills of materials and through bid submittals and they're ordered months in advance and it's very complex. There's not that much value add to taking a PO that you get three months in advance of the project and entering it through a website. You just hand it to your sales rep and they can, the sales rep rocks it in and they enter it into the ERP. Now, you know, I ran e-commerce at YCAP for a while. If I were to go back, I'd do it much differently than I did, which probably people at YCAP would hope for as well. <laughs> well, and so what you're, what you're saying is the Granger's MRO style e-commerce site is absolutely the wrong move for pretty much all of construction. You need the ability to sell on-demand products, you know, but, you know, Granger's entire business is, well, this is an exaggeration. A lot of Granger's business is a shrink wrap product on a shelf that came in from a supplier. Somebody puts in an order and they pick pack and ship it out uh, on common carrier, right? That's a huge chunk of their business. 
that's very little business uh, the part of the business for companies like Whitecap and Construction Supply Group, right? So you need microsites and you need uh, sites that are devoted for big national accounts. And, you know, you, you know there, there are ways you can over time become more electronic, but you're just, there's not as much of a value add today for this kind of business, which is fantastic, right? Because that means it's not easy, as easy for companies like Amazon Business to come in and take your share. Now, you know, in construction, they have something called small tools, which is all those you know, tools and accessories and safety products. All that can be sold online because that is sort of pick, pack, and ship product. And I would argue that Whitecap and these other companies need to get really, really good at that stuff, right? And, but that's not the heart and soul of their e-business value proposition. It's not, it's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be as good at that as Amazon is. On the other hand, Amazon is being very aggressive. Amazon Business, too about developing voice ordering and item identification ordering using artificial intelligence. And that is a beautiful use case for a superintendent on a job site. 100%. If that superintendent can point this camera, his phone camera, or look at something and, and describe it and say, you know, deliver it to me here, you know, as soon as possible. Not only can Amazon identify that order using AI by, you know, uh, identifying it through a picture or by a voice description, which nobody in distribution can do, right? But, you know, they're going to be delivering a lot of that stuff by drone, which sounds insane, but that's their plan. I mean, they got their patent about drone delivery. They're going to have drone hives in the sky that are blimps full of merchandise. And I feel like a nut just saying it, but that's a real patent that Amazon has. And if you don't think they're going to do it, then, you know, think about how well people have done who have bet against Amazon's crazy ideas over the last 20 years. So if you're going to bet against that one, you're taking a big risk. That's not is that a big chunk of the business? No, it's not. It's a small chunk of the business. That small, you know, it may be 5% of the construction supplies business on any particular project, but it's disproportionately profitable. I was going to say it's high margin. And so the construction supplies people are, are well motivated to protect that business. Yeah. and, and, And you, and you have to have those capabilities over time. I mean, you don't need to say, well, man, I got to go get, you know, voice ordering in place for my customers right now. You probably don't need that for five years, but you can't wait 10. That's right. And, and so, you know, I think you have to have world-class capabilities. And I think, you know, uh, Whitecap's got a fantastic IT department and they've got, you know, a lot of tremendous capabilities, but I just think they need to be, maybe they already are. I mean, I've been gone for a few years now, but I, they need to be aware that that stuff's coming and they need to have the foundational capabilities in place, but they've got a good ERP and there's, you know, they, they have robust capabilities. They're completely unafraid to spend on technology uh, in strategic and tactical ways. So I think they can do it. You know, they just need to be sure they do. So I just realized based on this uh, second sub bullet, digital or die, mm-hmm. and my, and the other article I quoted, it might seem like I'm obsessed with death, eat lunch, be lunch or die, digital or die. Um, <laughs> I'm going to spend a little time after the call thinking about that, but on point to this topic, what the um, what we've noted recently, uh, we wrote a blog on this, is that COVID has just absolutely changed the game in digital. And yes. our data, data from McKinsey, data from Forrester, data from what's the um, I can't think of anyhow the competitor to act on Hub Hub, whatever um. senior moment. Anyhow, one of the big marketing automation tools. Um, so the data HubSpot, HubSpot. there you go. Yes, HubSpot. I was, I had it on the tip of my tongue. We we had predicted in 2018 that 2020 was going to be a tipping point in, in digital. 
right. who didn't have clairvoyance about about COVID, oh my goodness, has it changed the landscape? I mean, yeah. literally. And I, I I use these numbers, and then they've been they've been actually verified. I said, you know, we're two hundred or several hundred percent more digital than we were prior to COVID, and I believe that we've accelerated the adoption by end users at least three years. We've been tracking that every two years what end users are doing with digital. I think that their timeline has been accelerated at least three, if not four or five years. Do you see so, the, have you seen the McKinsey chart? Yeah, I've seen the McKinsey chart. Yeah. Yeah. And they say there's been 10 years of e-commerce adoption in the last six months. Oh, six. Okay. So they're, they're, they're up in my number. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just radically accelerated. And so this idea of, you know, post COVID is not going to equal pre COVID. You might think, Oh, wow, we're just going to reverse. Like, no, not even close. This right. behavior is here to stay. And I think it does have an impact on what's going on with this segment, construction, um, which has, as I said before, been a laggard in this. So at a minimum, uh, it's imperative for distributors, even if you're not focused so much on the transaction, to have really good product content on your page. And, That's and, right. And have people be able to find stuff. The search engine's got to work. It's got to navigate if you're, if you're not taking transactions yet, make sure they can get in touch with the person immediately. By the way, I mean, uh, construction customers, they like their customer service rep. They don't like to purchase digitally. So, um, you know, maybe the transactional piece is not quite as, as urgent there, but you've got to get up to speed post haste with um, a, a good shopping site where people can find research and evaluate things. Yeah, but as there continues to be generational turnover in the uh, in the workforce, you're going to see even more demand for digital in uh, in construction as well. Absolutely. And, and and as Dean Mueller on our team just pointed out in chat, uh, you need good product information and differentiated product data, and that's an excellent point. And we'll be talking about that with Jason Hine when we you know do our product data show that we were planning to, originally planning to do today, because he makes a distinction between sort of that transactional information that you need and differentiated product data, which really elevates you above Amazon. Because as Jason said, Amazon's a great place to find something that you know what you're looking for. And it's a terrible place to try to figure out what you're looking for if you don't already know. And that's where distributors can, I think, really have an advantage because you, know, you can put in place product data uh, around a much smaller set of products, but it's much more robust. And that's what gives you the advantage over a pure transaction, purely transactional site like Amazon, right? Absolutely. Okay. And uh, let's see here. We have another question or a statement here from Josh. Thank you, Josh. People are too busy to handle it all. You are behind if you don't have self-service options for your customers. If you build it, they will come. You know, I love that. I, and I, by the way, I think it's becoming more true as the workforce transitions away from people of my generation and your generation, Jonathan, and more millennials and Gen Zs. I mean, they just, and, and particularly because of COVID, you know, you, you know, you've got to have these self-service options. For one thing, they're available twenty-four-seven, right? And so, another... I'm going to agree with Josh on the first part. Okay. Um, people have to have the self-service, but I think we've seen. Uh, I'll reference Dean here, our colleague again, that building it and they will come is is actually not quite sufficient. Um, if you build it and you don't do anything to market, they won't necessarily come. That's fair. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, and, 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 the, and the bar for marketing is going up all the time. If we look at the SEO arms race, right. you know, people are increasing the number of search words, search terms that appear in Google or Bing 
at 50 to 100% a year. I mean, people who are in the game, I mean, if you're not in the game, you're not increasing it that quickly. But the ones who are in the game are increasing the number of search terms 50 to 100% a year. Yeah, so and he says he agrees to, completely. You have to do something more proactive than just yeah. build it and say, okay, we're open. Yeah, and Josh commented he agrees completely. And But look, that's true of any new service, right? I mean, you have to market it or, or people don't know, right? And, that's right. And, you know, you got to tell people that it exists or, you know, they're not going to show up. By the way, Josh, I just saw that movie again recently, Field of Dreams. It was absolutely wonderful. My wife had never seen it. I recommend it to all of us in this hard, desperate time to watch this this movie of... Um, <laughs> Open inspiration. Message. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Costner. Okay. I, we, uh, hold on. We got another one. Uh, this friend of the show, Joe. Hi, Joe. I will object to the generation piece. I believe that with COVID, people who hated technology have been forced into it and are now addicted. You know what? That is a great point because, you know, maybe what I said was more true pre-COVID, but now everybody's got to be online. That's a really insightful comment as well, don't you think? I think you and I both look like addicts, Ian. He's calling us addicts. No, no, no. He's saying that people are addicted to the e-commerce, not anything. I understand. We're forced into it. Our, our generation. Yeah. We, we, we look yeah. like the generation that he's saying is now addicted. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I th- yeah, that's a really good point, Joe. I think that what I, you know, maybe my comment about how, you know, the generational turnover uh, is going to drive more online business. I think there's still some truth to that. But to your point, you know, the reality is, that you know, a, a, a lot of people are buying online who probably never had an account before, never really knew how to do it, but now they don't have any choice. And, and he did point out, by the way, Jonathan, that he was referring to a different kind of addiction than the Colorado type. I, I never have a conversation without Joe without some very clever witticism like that. Uh-huh, yeah. So thank you, okay. Joe. Okay, so if you have questions, I hope you will get in touch with us. Here's our contact information and on the right, You can see the research report that Jonathan and I just wrote that's available on naw.org. Like I said, it's in the rotating top banner, or you can go to the URL there. It's about 20 pages of information and original research about how technology will transform wholesale distribution. This is distributors telling us their views on technology transformation in their own words and in their own opinions. Uh, So it's really valuable. It's very fresh. We completed the survey less than a month ago, right? And This is the uh, second research report. There's also a webinar coming up. I think it's on August 18th, but you can check on the site when you go to that URL. Um, And so the webinar is sort of a distillation of the information that's in the research report. Uh, This is really important stuff. It's the second paper in the series. We strongly encourage you to download both uh, and you can listen to archives of the webinars. And then there's five more coming. So we have a whole lot of research coming on how technology is going to transform the wholesale distribution industry. And it does take into account uh, factors like disruptors uh, and uh, every kind of technology that we think is relevant from blockchain to 3D printing to artificial intelligence to marketplaces. Jonathan? We're not, kill- we're not killing any trees in the process. It's all digital. So, that, Well, unless you print it out. That's, that's on you. That's not on <laughs> Hey, Jonathan, as usual, it's been wonderful doing this show with you. I always enjoy it. This was a fun one and uh, an exciting one because of the subject matter, but it's, it's great to work with you as always. Mutual. All right. Thank you for attending the Wholesale Change Show. Uh, Please look us up online. We'd love to see you on future shows. And like I said, please reach out to us if you have any questions or comments. We love engaging with thought leaders in the wholesale distribution industry because that's what we do. Have a wonderful day and thanks again. Bye now.